Welcome back, everyone. If you can uh, put your video on, it's nice to see people as I um, speak and then as we talk together. So if you're back, uh, yeah, I'll invite the video to be on if that works for you. So this morning, which is for some afternoon and for some evening, I want to uh, continue to explore the nature of awakening. This will be the third talk on awakening, which is the core intention of Buddhist practice. That our practice aims to bring us to what the Buddha called awakening, using the very ordinary term of his time for waking up from sleep, for what happens after sleep in the morning and so forth. So it's the very ordinary term. The root is bud, which becomes Buddha, and awakening, the term is bodhi. Some of you know, as in the term bodhisattva. I think there, I don't know, I think it's, Maybe in L.A. there's a Bodhi bookstore. I don't know if it's still there. any case, um, that's, our, that's our theme today. And today I'm going to uh, go into some explorations that are different from what we've done so far. I'm going to focus, and this was really uh, previewed in the guided meditation, I'm going to explore the teaching of the factors of awakening. These are the qualities which function in two ways. These are the qualities of mindfulness, investigation, energy related to resolve and effort, uh, joy or bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are qualities which, when we develop them, they move us closer to awakening. And secondly, these qualities are the expression of an awakened being. And as it were, when we manifest these qualities, at least momentarily, there's awakening. We are awake. So... I think uh, Joseph Goldstein once said, you can look at awakening mathematically. It's almost like the sense of, uh, you know, the rain drop by drop fills up a bucket. And there's something about awakening like that. Moment after moment that are awake moves us towards awakening. And in that moment of being awake, just it could just be mindful of my itch. In that moment, we're not all that far away from being a Buddha. That's good news, isn't it? And so that's what I want to, that's what I want to explore. And I'll say a little bit about what I've explored the last two times. Uh, we had in sessions before I focused on awakening, focused a lot on working with reactivity, working with difficult emotions, 
We had brought in some of our multiple social crises, whether the crisis of climate or racism or economic inequality or political polarization. And we could go on probably a few more times, but those are some big ones. And we had looked into the difficulties and I wanted to, in a way, complement that by looking into the nature of awakening and practices which lead us to what uh, one author, Stephen Levine, called a gradual awakening. And I'll focus mostly today on those seven qualities, which are the factors of awakening. But I also, uh, two times ago, explored the nature of awakening. I mentioned how for the Buddha, awakening is described by him, especially, we might say, more negatively. It's described as the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion in all their manifestations. You know, greed is really a term, maybe in translation, for the different forms of grasping, especially habitually, the ways that we, you know, grasp at different uh, sense pleasures or grasp at relationships or grasp at ideas and views, all the different forms of grasping and aversion is the opposite kind of reactivity, all the ways that we push away when I'm reactive in my body or reactive interpersonally. I push away someone else's views. I'm judgmental. I'm, you know, angry and negative and, you know, judgmental of someone else or even even of myself. All, all the different ways that happens, maybe catalyzed by fear or sadness or whatever. You know, the emotions of anger or fear or sadness are not the problems. The problems are when they get linked with reactivity. That's an important point that, you know, we can keep coming back to. And so um, the Buddha mostly talked about practices which help us cut through these dimensions of reactivity, the grabbing hold, the pushing away. And then what he thought was the underlying delusion or ignorance that we somehow believe that reactivity or grasping or pushing away compulsively and habitually is going to help, right? It's going to help if I only, you know, grab hold of this or that over and over again, I will be happy. And there's a deep ignorance there. So this is what the Buddha was, was talking about. And here, a quotation I think I gave two times ago from the Dhammapada, he said, those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging. They are luminous and completely liberated in this life. And then the Buddha also, somewhat more rarely, talked about what it's like to actually be awake what kind of awareness or consciousness does an awake person have? And he said, for someone who was deeply free, there's an awareness which he called signless, boundless, and all luminous. I use the phrase awakened awareness to describe that. Signless means 
not under the rule of concepts. Boundless means there is a sense almost like of very spacious awareness going towards the infinite. This is something that we, I think, probably all have experienced at moments. Maybe when we're feeling a deep love or very connected to the wilds, that sense of uh, awareness that's, that's edging towards the infinite. How many people know, at least for a moment, something like that? Right? So, you know, it can be in different circumstances. And so there, and then there's the luminous quality. So the Buddha talked that way, and later Buddhist teachers and practitioners have used similar language. And so in the Thai forest tradition, they talk about the radiant mind. Or Achan Cha, with whom I studied, talks about the old mind, the old original mind, which has these qualities uh, of non-attachment and of being open and so forth. And I also mentioned some passages, uh, I think uh, last time and the time before, from the Tibetan tradition. One that I love, which I've worked with, goes like this. Uh, and, and just see if this resonates with you. This is from the 16th century, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. When we cultivate awakening, those qualities were there. And then last time, I mentioned especially while fully honoring and respecting the tradition and the beauty of this understanding of awakening and the real, we might say, the, the incredible um, vision that it gives of human life. And in, in some Buddhist traditions, they said that awakening is possible for non-humans as well. They actually had discussions, especially in China, on the basis of my understanding, you know, can dogs be fully awake? And they came down on the side that said yes. <laughs> and so, um, and so um, but I, I talked last time, again, while fully honoring, does a contemporary path of awakening need to look at other ways of training? And my answer was yes, that there are dimensions of our experience. We could talk about them as areas of ignorance or grasping, pushing away, greed, aversion, which uh, were not identified in the traditional map. And I think we, and I know this from my own teaching and my own experience, we need some further maps, trainings, practices that get at uh, two main areas. And I identify these on the one hand as uh, what we could call psychological conditioning. You know, we might think about it as getting at the residues of our difficult childhood experiences, which most of us have, our confusion as childs, as children, which as adults manifest sometimes even as trauma or as limiting beliefs or as ways that we have habitual tendencies that are often unconscious that date from when we were at a vulnerable young age. A lot of psychology 
focus is there and gives us tools to understand and transform. And then in a parallel way, I also talked about dimensions of social conditioning. You know, and I named ones around how we get conditioned according to the social constructions of gender and race and, you know, uh, class, economic status, religion. We could go down a whole list, sexual orientation, age, religion, and so forth. And there are ways that there is deep conditioning in these areas that is connected with relatively unconscious tendencies. So I suggested that we really need, in terms of both the more psychological and the more social, we need to add practices that would complement the traditional path of awakening. You know, and partly I referred to that need by reminding us of some of the stories that many of us have heard about especially teachers who seem to be awake in many ways, but also have these residues that are not awake, right? You know, manifesting sometimes in abuse or really difficult dynamics and, um, you know, a lot of gender issues, particularly for male teachers, but some women teachers have done similar things, not very many. Um, and, you know, and we could go on like that. So that's what I, that's what I explored um, the last two times. And what I want to do now is to really bring in further the more detailed teaching about the seven factors of awakening. And what, the, these, what this teaching offers us is a very specific for, uh, set of practices. You want to awaken, develop these qualities, develop these seven qualities. You know, and so, you know, as we listen, we might be inspired to work with them. We could take, okay, I'll focus on one practice each week or one practice each month. I'll focus on mindfulness. Uh, the first month, then I'll focus on looking more carefully at experience, investigation, discerning what's happening, looking carefully. I'll focus then on energy, then I'll focus on joy, maybe do two months on joy, <laughs> right? And so we might, uh, this can be a way of, uh, of training. We can do this on our own, do it with a friend, can read some of the text from the Buddha or from uh, contemporary teachers on these, on these teachings and practices. And we can also listen. Another way to practice is listen, which of these seven are well-developed in my own experience and which are less developed? Where am I, I want to give attention? So maybe I'm pretty good with mindfulness, but maybe I'm a little bit grim. Has anyone ever been grim with meditation practice? Okay. Maybe I'm a little bit grim. I know for me, this was a tendency kind of serious. I, I remember, I think it was at a retreat. Someone came up to me at a retreat and at the end of the retreat and said, are you always this serious? And I, I didn't think I was that serious, but... Um, Looking back, I think there was there may have been a kind of grimness or determinedness, and there was maybe not so much joy. And I think I later worked to balance that by um, enrolling in the clown school of San Francisco and training as a clown. 
which I, I did for uh, a six-month program. No. Anyway, so that's... Um, but we can, we can ask, which of these do I need to develop more? Okay, so the, the term in the original teachings for these seven factors, sometimes called the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening, the, uh, the term is bojanga, which really combines the two roots of bodhi and then the anga means uh, uh, factor. Um, so these are the, the factors of awakening, the anga of bodhi. Uh, that's the original language. And again, these are the qualities that an awakened being manifests or that manifests when we're in awake states. And they're also the qualities we want to train in. It said, this is from, uh, from the Buddha, one who develops the seven factors slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana or liberation. How does that sound? I'd like to be slanting and sloping towards Nibbana. This, this happens when we, when we do this. The Buddha also called them the seven precious gems of a wheel-turning monarch. That was one of the metaphors he used. They are the makers of vision and knowledge. Interestingly, the seven qualities, and I'll, I'll go into them one by one in a moment, the seven qualities really are in three different sets. There's, first of all, mindfulness, which is a balancing factor. It's useful all the time. It lets us know what's happening, and it tends to balance the other factors. And then the other six are divided into two groups of three. The first are the, the energizing or activating factors, and the second set of three are the stabilizing factors. And so uh, there's instruction that we actually want to use the energizing factors, especially when we're a little low on energy, we're a little bit dull, then we, would, um, then we would invite more investigation, looking carefully. Then we in, would invite more energy. Then we'd invite joy, rapture, and bliss. And similarly, when we were um, maybe overly activated, and we'd want more stability or more tranquility, then we would invite the latter three. We'd invite uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Those help us stabilize, become more balanced. And it's interesting that, the, that these six qualities are not ones that we should develop all the time, according to the teachings. That the when we're, when we're actually very, as I mentioned, when we're restless, activated, mind really, really busy, we don't want to necessarily do investigation, which involves some thinking. And we don't want to sort of rouse the energy because that would sort of expand the restless quality. But rather then we would go for the second set of three, the tranquility, concentration, or equanimity. So am I really restless? Maybe I 
work to concentrate my mind. And in a similar way, if I'm overly dull or don't have much energy or kind of uh, sluggish, then I would, then actually he said the latter three aren't so useful. You know, I don't want to focus a lot on tranquility or concentration or equanimity when I'm pretty dull, sluggish, and so forth. Then I would go for the energizing quality. So it's, these are um, grouped in a, in a way which instruct us in our practice. It's interesting, isn't it? It's quite a, you know, it's psychologically pretty savvy, right? Do these when you're kind of dull. Do these when you're overly, you know, activated or energized. Okay. And the Buddha talked, took these seven qualities as being particularly able to cut through um, grasping and aversion, as well as the, you know, the uh, sluggishness and the uh, restlessness and so forth. And these are basically what are sometimes known as the five hindrances or the five difficult energies. The first is more of a, a grasping. The second is more of a pushing away. The third is sometimes called sloth and torpor, sluggishness. And the fourth is restlessness. The fifth is actually doubt or confusion about what we're doing. And so these cultivating these qualities get at these tendencies that are called that are called the hindrances maybe one or two other things to say before I go into talking about them uh, one by one the Buddha said to develop these he said the main nutriment he said is careful attention careful attention, kind of a form of mindfulness, careful attention to what's happening in our experience. That will actually lead us to develop these factors. He said, in terms of internal factors, I do not see any other factor that is so helpful for the arising of these seven factors of awakening as careful attention. And he said the main external support for the uh, factors of awakening to develop is having good friends. So you want to develop the seven factors of awakening, have good friends. That's what the Buddha said. You know, he, he was pretty much meaning good friends who all, also are interested in the seven factors. So I think that's, but, but, he's, but it's interesting that, that he says the main external factor, we could call it community, community support of friends and, and, and others. Okay, so let's look at these one by one. And then I'll come back right at the end to remind us of some of the ways we might practice with them. But I'll, I'll also mention that along the way. So mindfulness, mind, the word for mindfulness in the original language is sati, S-A-T-I. And that actually has connotations related to memory and remembering. And, you know, from time to time, you know, over the years, I probably have said that mindfulness may not be the best translation of sati, right? 
Mindfulness was a translation from Victorian England. I think the first use was 1881. And I think of the translator um, thinking, you know, telling uh, his children, now, George, do mind, be mindful and eat your peas, <laughs> right? Something like that. So uh, one of, you know, so we just want to be clear that the term that we use mindfulness for has to do with the mind, the body, and the emotions. And it's more, some people prefer awareness as a translation of sati, because it's, it's really something that's not just about the mind. It's something that really uh, includes the mind, the body, and the emotions, to, to use those terms. So it's helpful to say that. Mindfulness for the Buddha was very, very central. He, he said that mindfulness is the direct path for the purification of beings. He gave it a special value, really a special role, to attain awakening. Mindfulness, he said, is the key factor. Essentially, as we know, it's about being aware of what's happening in the present moment. And in the core teaching on mindfulness, we develop mindfulness first by being aware of the body, including the breath. Then we're aware of what's called the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We can be aware of thoughts and emotions. And then the fourth foundation is to be aware of certain patterns of experience. So generally speaking, our mindfulness lets us be aware increasingly of the different parts of our experience. You know, and I know when I was first meditating, I was not that aware of the body. I probably have mentioned this from time to time, and it's probably true for many of us. I was a student at the time, so I was mostly thinking. So I wasn't that aware of my body. So for me, mindfulness was a revelation because I was aware of my breath, my body. And this was even though I had been a competitive uh, swimmer, athlete for 10 years, but I wasn't that aware of my body. I must have been thinking when I was swimming all that time, right? And so it was a revelation to be, uh, as they say, coming back to my senses, right? And so uh, mindfulness of the body can be revolutionary and to stay in the body. I think it's revolutionary for Western culture to actually be grounded in the body. And so that's one of the main things we learn with mindfulness. But we also learn how to notice this key teaching about the way that our sense of pleasant, when we're not mindful, will lead to grasping. When our sense of unpleasant will lead, when we're not mindful, to automatically pushing away. And then being mindful of thoughts and emotions, amazing. To hang out and be mindful of anger or joy, or sadness, see what it's like. So mindfulness is uh, attentive to whatever is there. We focus on the more direct experience, not so much on the stories or the thinking. So we develop the capacity to be aware of sensations, or to be aware more directly of emotions feeling the emotional energy not so dominated by the stories. That's a fruit of, of mindfulness. Mindfulness has a quality also of openness. 
we're able to be with whatever arises. We don't so much control what comes up. And so mindfulness can be a doorway to what is relatively unconscious surfacing. See, mindfulness is pretty powerful. You know, I'm mentioning all these qualities. You know, did you think just by being aware of your breath and being aware of your thinking that all these things were developing? Maybe not usually, but it's actually very powerful. When we're mindful and we're open, we give the invitation for what is unconscious to come to the surface. Pretty, pretty amazing. You know, and it does that sometimes slowly, but that happens as part of the process. Mindfulness is non-reactive. You know, we can be with whatever's coming up and we don't try to push it away when we're really fully mindful. We can be mindful of reactivity. Mindful, uh, mindfulness is non-reactive of reactivity. Mindfulness of anger isn't angry. Interesting, isn't it? That I can actually be mindful of reactivity. That's so fascinating. I can be mindful of my mind being a little bit out of control. Isn't that fascinating that there, you know, I don't know if we were to be mathematical, maybe we'd say 20% of my attention is being mindful and I'm 80% caught, but there's still that 20%. Pretty interesting, right? That's, that is incredibly valuable when we're going through difficult times, right? And, we, and some part of us knows what's happening. How many have noticed that, it, after, you know, as a fruit of your practice at times? You're going through something difficult and part of you knows, and that, that part is kind of like the pivot that can say, here's what's wise to do right now. And so even, and that, that's something, I think, really crucial point, that even when we're not, you know, primarily mindful, mindfulness can still function. You know, I can remember experiences, you know, one extreme one when I was really, really spun out. You know, I think this was on a retreat. I was really spun out, and part of me knew I'm spun out, even if it was just 10 or 15%. And it gave me some stability. It gave me some, um, almost some faith, some uh, equanimity. You know, it let me say, you know, don't worry, you know, and, you know, do what's skillful. So, and so... That, in a way, points towards another quality of mindfulness, which is that it, uh, um, over time, brings insight and wisdom. When we look over and over again, we see things. And we like to say that we don't always see things immediately. I can be mindful of a habitual pattern of mind, and I get hooked by it 50 times. But on the 51st time, I see, oh, look at that habitual pattern, right? We have what we call technically blazing insight into the totally obvious. How many have had a blazing insight into the totally, totally obvious in the last week or two? <laughs> okay. That's what we're looking for. You know, we get caught by it 50 times, the 51st we notice. So we have to have that patience, right? We have to keep on looking. And then maybe lastly, uh, I think this is an important point. Mindfulness, when it's mature, has a quality of care and the kind heart. Sometimes we think even the language, we think we, we mindfulness sound, this is why I don't like the term so much, but mindfulness has when it's mature, the quality of love. We can think of that maybe when 
when you have a friend who is sitting with you and really paying attention to you, just listening. There's a kind of mindfulness, but there's a quality of care, isn't there? A quality of love. And so that is there when mindfulness gets mature. And that can be something which, if it's not so much there for you, you can invite. Can I have a little more care and kindness in my mindfulness? It's like Sylvia has that line, which you've probably heard about mindfulness. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet this moment as a friend. That's the quality of care. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet this moment as a friend. So the second quality, this is one of the activating factors. The second factor of awakening is called investigation. Uh, the Pali term is Dhamma Vichaya. D-H-A-M-M-A. V-I-C-A-Y-A, if you're interested in that. And it's, it's called investigation. It's really about discernment. It's really about seeing things clearly and being active in seeing clearly. So this quality of Dhammavichaya or investigation, we probably could translate it a few different ways or you know, uh, inquiry, investigation, um, looking, looking carefully, looking deeply, looking with discernment could be a translation. And this is something that, that is really linked with wisdom, with seeing clearly. It's seeing what's there. And sometimes we need to actually kind of energize our practice. This is where we would bring in sometimes reflection and concepts. We, we might notice ourselves a little bit confused, and then we could ask ourselves, what's happening? You know, this is an old term from the 60s. I had a friend in college who had probably done a few more, a, a few too many psychedelics and he, he went around, and, and about half of his communication, he would just say, what's happening? <laughs> right? What's happening? How many Anyone met someone like that? Just saying, what's happening? And uh, I hope he's okay <laughs> now. It's a long time ago. But anyway, uh, but, but that could be a way that we practice with investigation. I'm a little bit confused about what's going on. I say, what's happening? to myself. And I try to look carefully. You know, I do that if I'm, if I'm somewhat reactive. If I notice reactivity, I can ask, what's going on? And then we could actually, with active investigation, I could actually just sort of set my mindfulness up. What's going on? What am I noticing? What patterns are there? Um, oh, there's anger. Oh, there's some reactivity. And I can ask that question, what's happening? I can also say, let me notice what's going on in the body. That's a kind of investigation. What's going on in the emotions? What's my main storyline now? So you see, again, going back to the way that this is an energizing factor, it can bring our practice very much alive. We wouldn't do this when we're thinking a whole lot, right? Necessarily. Or it'd have to be done carefully. If I'm just totally distracted by thinking, investigation might not be called for, but rather we would do what brings us more 
more tranquility. You know, and the, the, the investigation is really about looking carefully, looking and seeing clearly. Um, this is from the Indian poet Kabir. He said, when the eyes and ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. Whoa, so when you're really discerning, you can really see things, notice things, notice, notice new things. And the Buddha said, if you want to really develop the quality of investigation, give careful attention to both what are skillful and positive states, but also to when you get caught. Give careful attention there. He said it's valuable sometimes to ask questions. He said if you want to uh, develop a skillful investigation, you should avoid fools. That's what he said. So I don't know if you have a friend who's a fool. I wouldn't necessarily tell that person I'm avoiding you because I'm working on the seven factors of awakening. But anyway, that's what the Buddha said. If you want to develop investigation, don't hang around with with people who are really, really foolish. And also probably, he didn't say this, but don't elect them into public office. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so the, the third quality is energy. Uh, it can also be called sometimes determination or resolve. This is the... The term in Pali is virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. And this is, um, you know, linked with the dimension of keeping on going. So this is especially the energy to keep going, keep being mindful, keep on the path to awakening. Right? It's, it's, that's why it's linked with resolve and determination it's the energy to keep practicing. You know, it could be, it could be for some of us, it could be the resolve. You know, I've slipped a little bit from my practice. Maybe I don't do it every day or my half an hour has slipped to 10 minutes. Anyone notice that happening occasionally? <laughs> right? Maybe it would be the resolve. I'm going to do it. I'm going to organize my day so it works. Right? That could be an aspect of resolve or determination. You can see how this is a important factor for continuing to awaken. It could be also to learn um, about what is skillful effort. It could be to have the determination when I'm stuck to um, turn to something which is helpful. You know, it could be to know when I'm stuck to do which gets me out of being stuck. That would be a kind of energy or determination. Um, it could be uh, the energy to uh, have the intention to develop these beautiful awakened qualities. It could be that. It's, it also can be um, a kind of just the, almost like the physical energy to practice or the, the body energy to practice. And so the Buddha actually mentioned as helpful for this, basically having good uh, personal habits, uh, you know, having uh, a balanced uh, diet, uh, not being overly uh, stimulated, uh, or, you know, he actually said not to be overly busy. This would be, this would be linked with uh, 
resolve or determination or having energy. We could ask what kinds of things that we do sap our energy for practice. You know, do I tune in too much to the news, for example? Anyone ever do that? You know, tune in because it's, you know, or do I spend too much time on the internet, right? We know that the algorithms are designed for addiction, right? That's been brought out, right? And so we might, you know, part of our sense of resolve or determination might be um, how much we go into uh, electronic devices. You know, I have several people I work with who, for them, part of determination or resolve is having a shutoff time for being on electronics. You know, and having an easing down time before they go to sleep. You know, I've several people I work with, they say, I need to have the boundary of 8.30 or 9 at night for electronics and have a time when I have some time for quiet things or meditation, right? That could be an aspect of this. Um, the fourth quality is joy or bliss or rapture. How many would like this one? Okay. Anyway, that's I, that was I, I this this one. The other ones sound like they could be difficult. This one sounds unambiguously like I want it, right? Uh, joy, bliss, a rapture, and this is something that can occur naturally in small and large ways when we practice. When the mind gets quiet, there can be some rapture, right? There can be a kind of bliss. There can be a bliss in the body from the mind being concentrated. It's a natural quality which develops. The Buddha was called the joyful one. There's a natural, it's basically it's the natural joy of being that we touch into, that we see typically with children, right? The joy of being. And can we stay in touch with that joy of being as adults? with all our responsibilities or you know, experiences which have been difficult at times, can I still stay in touch with my joy? Can I stay in touch with my joy if I'm an activist? It's a big issue. You know, I think there was, I heard a, a talk recently by Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called Pleasure Activism. She said, you might take a look at it. She said, uh, activists need to be in connection with pleasure and joy, or they won't last that long. They'll be burnout, right? That's, that's nice. So, so this factor is, is crucial. It's a quality of happiness. There can be a lightness of the body. There can be the subtle, blissful energy in the body. This can happen when the mind gets concentrated more or peaceful. You can have it for small moments or can be for a longer time. Uh, sometimes we can even have a quality of bliss listening to a talk or being around a certain person. It's, it has sometimes a contagious quality. Um, I could say more about joy. Some of us may want to cultivate joy to say, okay, of these seven factors, I think for me, the next month, just joy. Anyone want to go that direction in terms of the... Okay, feel free. Okay, and um, the fifth quality is tranquility. This is uh, kind of uh, a certain calmness. 
And this is actually a calmness or tranquility that can be there no matter what's happening. You know, I remember I once worked in the, after a retreat, I worked for a week in the, in the, in the retreat center kitchen. And it was really, really hectic. But I, I, had, I came to it after practicing for about a month. And my mind was really quiet and tranquil and calm. calm. And I, it was a revelation. I can actually be calm and peaceful even with all sorts of things happening and needing to pay attention in 10 different ways. So this quality of calm and tranquility doesn't mean nothing's happening. Sometimes it does, but it can mean that the mind is, to use Achan Cha's metaphor, it's like a still forest pool. Our minds can be like a still forest pool. And so things may ripple sometimes, but they settle really, really quickly like a still forest pool. And we can, we can have that sense. You know, when there's tranquility, there's not reactivity. That, that's really the key. We can have a lot happening. When I was working in the kitchen like that, there was a lot happening, but in a sense, I was going with the flow. There wasn't reactivity. I wasn't having preferences. I wasn't thinking, I wish not so much was happening. That's tranquility. And so it's a kind of calm that can be there when not much is happening. It can be there when a fair amount is happening. But the mind is like that still forest pool. You know? And of course, again, for calmness, it can be a calmness in the body, calmness of emotions, calmness of thinking. Again, there are things we can do that can be helpful. Not being overly stimulated, being careful with electronics. You know, diet can play a role as well in terms, you know, exercise. I find, you know, I, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a swimmer and I still do four or five days a week swimming. And I find that that deep, um, or the powerful exercise, I find there's a certain calmness in the body after that. How many know that from your own exercise, something like that? Yeah. And it's, it's very significant, you know. Uh, you know, and so I think that's why in, in the old days, uh, you know, doing a lot of walking was just, was part of the life. As a monk or nun, you walked a lot. There was a lot of physical exercise. And, and so that could be, uh, you know, that's very much part of tranquility. Uh, the Buddha said, you know, actually mentioned in his guidance for developing tranquility, by, oh, by the word, the word uh, by the way, the word is pasadi, P-A-S-S-A-D-H-I. And the Buddha actually said, you know, um, uh, be skillful with your diet. That he's 2,600 years ago. If you want to develop tranquility, look at your diet, he said. He also said, um, live in a good climate. <laughs> Less under our control at the moment, right? But uh, uh, he said... Um, Find a comfortable posture also. Having a, um, a way of meditating in which there's ease can help with calm. He said, uh, don't spend time around people who are louts, L-O-U-T. I don't know what the original word was, but he said, don't spend your time around loutish people. That will help with your tranquility. 
is probably related to not watching the news too much or not overly. I, I watch the news enough to be well informed, just to be clear. The, the, the sixth quality is concentration, which is really has two aspects. It's being focused at times just on one area, like on our anchor, like with the breath. And concentration also means being attentive to changing objects. It means being aware of whatever's happening, being able to stay with what's ever happening. Concentration lets us be both with just one object, maybe in meditation. It also helps us stay with what's changing and stay focused, you know? So concentration, really important for all kinds of work, you know, outside of meditation. Is my mind distracted? Developing concentration helps me be less distracted no matter what I'm doing. A really, really valuable area. Uh, temporarily, concentration can suppress all of the hindrances and bad habits that we have. So it gives us a taste of awakening. When we're really concentrated temporarily, um, none of our bad habits are there. And we don't have the hindrances. So it can be really, really helpful. And it's important, though, for concentration to be balanced with uh, not over-efforting. You know, if we're concentrating too much, we'll notice tension in the body, sometimes in the side of the head or in the head in some way. We want to look out for that with concentration. There's a lot more we could say. You know, I sometimes uh, teach our, our multi-day concentration retreat, and the retreat in November will have three days just on concentration. But there, So there's a lot about what is a skillful and balanced way of having ease, but also really strong focus. And again, a lot of the things we mentioned earlier, you know, even related to diet, exercise, uh, stimuli, busyness, all of these will play a role in concentration. And then lastly, <clears throat> I'll, I'll focus on, on equanimity. And I'll, I, I would love to talk for a long time about it, but I want to open up to discussion soon. So equanimity is the quality of being balanced with whatever's happening. It's a beautiful quality. And it's sometimes said to be like the rudder for all the other qualities. You know, equanimity helps us uh, uh, keep going in a, in a more or less straight way. It keeps us balanced. It takes us away from being knocked off balance. And there's also a quality of caring there. We sometimes say equanimity is like the wise grandmother who has seen everything but still cares. So equanimity is connected with care, but it's the quality of balance. A lot of equanimity comes from having worked with loss of balance in our practice. So every moment where you're out of balance and you come back, you know, you're really reactive, but you notice it and come back from it, that's developing equanimity. Equanimity uh, is developed also when we hang out with what's challenging or difficult. When I hang out enough with anger or fear or grief, I know them very, very well. I'm not scared by them. I can be balanced with them, like a mountain climber who knows fear very, very well. A mountain climber is not afraid of fear, right? Mountain climber can notice some fear, say, okay, some fear. That's what happens when we're with 
difficult experiences over and over. It's a fruit of our practice. We get to know them and we're not, um, you know, we say, oh, there's anger here. Oh, let me look at it. Not a problem, right? Or there's um, grief. Oh, let me just be with it. Or even there's despair. Oh, okay, I'll be with it. Or there's, you know, um, uneven energy in the body. Okay, I've seen that. I can be with it. Equanimity, so equanimity, you can hear it's connected with confidence. It's connected with a certain level of experience. So again, I'll, I'll finish by saying, how do we practice? We could choose to have a whole curriculum where one month at a time or one week at a time, I develop each of the seven. It's a beautiful way to practice. I work with a number of people who they take, I'll take this quality for one month. Can give tremendous uh, coherence. Then you could do the practice, focus on these, listen to talks about the quality, read some, talk to friends about the quality. You can focus on that. The other way I mentioned earlier was which of these qualities do I need to develop more in? We can especially focus there um, both in uh, daily practice and, and um, can give, give emphasis on them, uh, on this particular quality uh, uh, over a period of time. So let's, let's finish by just having a moment of quiet and ask yourself first, which of these seven factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, which of these am I in need of developing? Is there one of these that I'd like to give emphasis on in the near future? How, what kind of practice calls to me? Do I want to just focus on a daily basis on maybe one quality or all the qualities? Or do I want to maybe take on one quality for a week or a month? Go through a rotation. And maybe just for right now, do I have a question or something to share about these seven beautiful qualities? So let me invite now, if anyone wants to ask a question or share a story or an experience of something that helps you develop one of these qualities, we have some time. Or it could be just to ask for clarification of the nature of one of the qualities. Uh, looks like we have Kat first, please. You can also uh, enter a question in the chat if you'd like. Cat and then okay. Chase. Thank yeah. you. This is my first time sitting at Spirit Rock. Oh, wow. But not my first time with you. I'm um, with Diana Winston at UCLA. And oh, wow. just this morning, she's assigned us the reading of your book. Uh, 
And just this morning, I started the Engaged Spiritual Life, and I just read through the introduction, and I'm always profoundly surprised um, and find a lot of bliss in the moments that uh, these practices just open up new ways and new habits and um, of thinking about life, of thinking about our daily experiences. So I'm working on concentration because I feel a little scattered, mm -hmm. but everything gets done and with a new kind of enthusiasm. So I just want to thank you for your practice. And I'm, I found myself here. I don't know how I got here in time and didn't miss you, but I'm glad that I'm here. I happen to be on social media. So when everyone keeps suggesting that I look at Spirit Rock, I'm on the East Coast. Um, And so these West Coast, East Coast um, conversations always come up. I'm a little beholden to my home in New York, and maybe I'm holding on a little bit too much and just kind of have to let the world be my oyster or whatever. But I just wanted to make that comment that I did when I woke up this morning, I just, I sat in practice, I did some body scan. And then I said, well, I want to read, I'm actually doing some detox as well in terms of diet. And um, you were my morning read. And now you're my afternoon. <laughs> so I think the universe is unfolding as it should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kat. A pleasure to uh, meet you. And say hi to Diana. And if you have any reflections or comments about my book, uh, uh, you can get them to I'll Diana. She'll, she'll get them to me. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And it sounds great. It sounds like the practice is really um, coming alive. You have you have good support. You know, this is a nice group. Diana's Winston is a close friend and colleague. And um, originally, we were going to write the engaged spiritual life together. We were going to do that together, but then Diana got another uh, got another uh, book offered to write, and she said, "I think I'll do this one. Can you do it yourself?" I said, "Okay, okay." I, I like that. <laughs> so, and I I host the reading groups for our TMF um, cohort that you're going to be with, and so I'm just glad to sit with you. This it's like a wonder, and I'm always this idea that fear and faith meet each other. Um, working together, you know, I, I live a contemplative life based on different um, practices, some of which have been with me since childhood. And so it's just, I'm, I'm always wary when my, my day has so much spontaneity in it and so much organic movement. I'm like, am I, it's not my to-do list, but I feel like I'm in the right place. Great. Uh, great, Kat. So, thank, yeah. thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, uh, Chase, please. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Donald, and hello, everyone. Um, when you mentioned the first factor of awakening with mindfulness, yeah. it's something I'm going through now where that pivot, that moment of where I have this opportunity to respond in a healthy way, but I also feel a great deal of grief because um, it feels as though I'm arrested from doing um, those habitual patterns that I'm used to that aren't necessarily so healthy. Um, so I ask, what are some mindful ways to handle the grief and loss of not responding in an unhealthy way? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Chase. And 
how many can relate to that question? I think it's, it's thank you, you're really asking it for so many people. Um, yeah, it's, I can add some things that I didn't bring up in the, uh, in the actual talk. You know, it's, it's really about how can I be mindful of what's difficult or brings up uh, grief or anger. And, you know, this is where in, I think you probably heard me in past sessions where I talk about when you're with something that's difficult, make an initial assessment of the degree of intensity, right? And I, I use that kind of Olympic diver scale, one to 10. And, you know, and know that we can usually be mindful with something that's a five or a six, but if it's really the most intense, a nine or a 10, we may think we're being mindful, but it, it's actually, we get lost in whatever's happening. And so that can be, that's, that's actually very important for um, actually being skillful with the mindfulness. So first, make a determination of kind of the level of intensity and know that mindfulness will work at certain levels, but then maybe if it's now at a nine or a 10, I may need to take a walk, do something physical, maybe do another, do compassion practice or something like that. Um, that's one thing. And then the second point is when we're going into something difficult that has uh, maybe some old patterns, uh, we want to also at times bring in, I think the heart practices can give us some balance, compassion, uh, even spend some time with joy uh, as a heart practice can really give us some, some balance. So that, those are a few things, but there, we could actually take uh, many sessions, and I, I've done that in the past, of really saying, how can I most skillfully bring mindfulness to, to challenging or difficult uh, states? So, um, so Chase, I hope, I hope that helps some. Yeah, great. Thank you. Other, maybe time for one or two more uh, sharings or um, questions. Yeah, please, uh, Anna. Hi, it's a bit on the lighter note, I guess. It's um, in regards to swimming and then jumping into deep waters um, <laughs> and fear of height. Yeah. And moving things. So I started swimming in an outside pool and they have an Olympic, it's an Olympic pool and they have the, the tower. Yeah. And um, my friend jumped from the, I guess it would be 10 feet, yeah. right? And I went up there and I was just going backwards and then the swimming lady trainer came up and I knew at the moment that she climbed up, I would jump because yeah. I've jumped from higher things, not with joy, but I did. Um, and I did. She walked me through it. But it's not enjoyable at all. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that's also a moment of staying with difficult emotions. And should I go back? Because my, my brain shuts off. I forgot my, I lost my goggles. I lost everything because I just for the next 15 minutes. I'm yeah. Yeah. It could, it can be interesting to, if, you know, if you, if you so choose to, you know, just, I don't know, if something like that happens again, you may or may not choose to do that again, right? 
<laughs> and um, but yeah, because sometimes it's also okay to to not do things again. I guess yeah, but I, if you one, one thing you could try if there's something like that, maybe something kind of you unexpectedly have, you know, you kind of get shut down like that. Mm -hmm. It would be to say, oh, let me do investigation. What's happening? Let me look at this, and it could be interesting just to explore. Uh, so that's that's an option uh, to uh, to you know or, or you know probably more commonly it would be something like maybe I have an interaction with someone and and it doesn't go so well and then I leave and then what would be skillful might be five minutes later rather than thinking a lot about it I could just sit down and say okay what's going on right now. That would that would be a ver that'd be linked to what I was saying. You know, with the with the diving board, you may or may not choose to do that again. <laughs> but but you could. Um, but the more the <laughs> more the principle is that if there's a challenging experience, especially again, I think very commonly we would have it with uh, interactions with other people, and you're a little confused. And if you can remember, okay, what it's it's that question: What's happening right now? Because normally, when we're habitually guided, we would just get into some old habit. You know, maybe I would be judgmental towards the person, or I'd go eat something, or whatever, right? Or if I if I was anxious or whatever, and so I can just say, okay, let me just be with it. But what's happening? Yeah. That could be that could be valuable. Thank you. So practice with a with a uh, on a smaller scale, basically. Smaller scale. You know, and, um, and more useful for life. Yeah, that would be more useful generally. But it's it's really the value of investigation. It can make things come alive because we, you know, we when we get really interested in all our habits and patterns, practice really comes alive. It's quite something. You know, when I get interested in my habits, because I'm actually interested in awakening. I'm actually interested in working through some of these old habits, which are. That's what it's so wonderful. The neuroscientists say that there is neuroplasticity, right? I have repeated this old habit one million or ten million times. I can change it reasonably quickly, surprisingly quickly. That's interesting. But we have to engage these uh, awakening factors. Okay, so thank you, Anna, and thank you, everyone. Let's. Um, Let's close now. May the, I'll close in the usual way I do traditionally. May the benefits of our time together be there for us. May our practice be supported. May our practice bring benefits for others as well. May the benefits for our morning extend in that way to others in our circle, and then go beyond the, our circles. May the benefits of our time together be shared with all beings, knowing that we are very much part of all beings. So 
Thank you, everyone, for your kind attention, for your mindfulness, for your joy, and for all the other qualities. May they keep developing. And yeah, may, may, we, uh, may we keep developing together. And I may, I may think I'm not with everyone until November, but I may come back. How many would like to have more attention to these factors of awakening? Okay, great. So again, go back to your intention. What's skillful for you to develop these? And we'll see you next time. So bye-bye, everyone. And if you want to... Uh, Bye. Go on Thank, mute you, you can, yeah. Can, yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Tolan. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Donald. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'll uh, close the room now. Thank you.